0: Section thirty eight of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Walker. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume Three, by James Boswell. Section thirty eight. Boswell you will recollect sir that dr. Robertson said he cut his throat because he was weary of still life Little things not being sufficient to move his great mind Johnson very angry Nay sir what stuff is this you had no more this opinion after Robertson said it than before I Know nothing more offensive than repeating what one knows to be foolish things by way of continuing a dispute to see what a man will answer to make him your butt angrier still. Boswell, my dear sir, I had no such intentions as you seem to suspect. I had not indeed. Might not this nobleman have felt everything weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable, as Hamlet says? Johnson, nay, if you are to bring in gabble, I'll talk no more. I will not upon my honour. My readers will decide upon this dispute. Next morning I stated to Mrs. Thrale at breakfast, before he came down, the dispute of last night as to the influence of character upon success in life. She said he was certainly wrong, and told me that a baronet lost an election in Wales because he had debauched the sister of a gentleman in the county, whom he made one of his daughters invite as her companion at his seat in the country, when his lady and his other children were in London. But she would not encounter Johnson upon the subject i stayed all this day with him at streatham we talked a great deal in very good humour looking at messrs dilly's splendid edition of lord chesterfield's miscellaneous works he laughed and said here now are two speeches ascribed to him both of which were written by me and the best of it is they have found out that one is like demosthenes and the other like cicero Footnote: johnson or boswell in reporting him here falls into an error. The editor of Chesterfield's works says that being desirous of giving a specimen of his lordship's eloquence, he has made choice of the three following speeches. The first in the strong nervous style of Demosthenes, the two latter in the witty, ironical manner of Tully. Now, the first of these speeches is not Johnson's, for it was reported in the Gentleman's Magazine for July 1737, nine months before his first contribution to that paper. In spite of great differences, this report and that in Chesterfield's works are substantially the same. If Johnson had any hand in the authorised version, he merely revised the report already published. Nor did he always improve it, as will be seen by comparing with Chesterfield's works the following passage from the Gentleman's Magazine. My Lords, we ought in all points to be tender of property, "'Wit is the property of those who are possessed of it, "'and very often the only property they have. "'Thank God, my lords, this is not our case. "'We are otherwise provided for.' "'The other two speeches are his. "'In the collected works they are wrongly assigned to Lord Carteret.' "'End of footnote. "'He censored Lord Came's sketches of the history of man "'for misrepresenting Clarendon's account "'of the appearance of Sir George Villiers' ghost.' as if Clarendon were weakly credulous, when the truth is that Clarendon only says that the story was upon a better foundation of credit that usually such discourses are founded upon. Nay speaks thus of the person who has reported to have seen the vision, the poor man if he had been at all waking, which Lord Kames has omitted. Footnote. These words are quoted by Kames. In his abbreviation, he perhaps passed over by accident the words that Johnson next quotes. If Clarendon did not believe the story, he wished his readers to believe it. He gives more than five pages to it, and he ends by saying, Whatever there was of all this, it is a notorious truth that when the news of the Duke's murder, which happened within few months after, was brought to his mother, she seemed not in the least degree surprised, but received it as if she had foreseen it. According to the story, he had told her of the warning which had come to him through his father's ghost. End of footnote. He added, In this book it is maintained that virtue is natural to man, and that if we would but consult our own hearts, we should be virtuous. Now, after consulting our own hearts all we can, and with all the helps we have, we find how few of us are virtuous. This is saying a thing which all mankind know not to be true. Footnote. Kames maintains that schools are not needful for the children of the labouring poor. They would be needful if, without regular education, we could have no knowledge of the principles of religion and of morality. But Providence has not left man in a state so imperfect. Religion and morality are stamped on his heart, and none can be ignorant of them who attend to their own perceptions. End of footnote. Boswell, is not modesty natural? Johnson, I cannot say sir as we find no people quite in a state of nature But I think the more they are taught the more modest. They are the French are a gross ill-bred and untaught people A lady there will spit on the floor and rub it with her foot footnote October five, seventeen sixty-four. Mr.. Elliot brings us woeful accounts of the French ladies of the decency of their conversation and the nastiness of their behavior Walpole wrote from Paris, on November 19, 1765, Paris is the ugliest, beastliest town in the universe, and describes the nastiness of the talk of French women of the first rank. Mrs. Piozzi, nearly twenty years later, places among the contradictions one meets with every moment at Paris, a countess in a mourning, her hair dressed, with diamonds too, perhaps, and a dirty black handkerchief about her neck. End a footnote. What I gained by being in France was learning to be better satisfied with my own country. Time may be employed to more advantage from nineteen to twenty-four, almost in any way than in travelling. When you set travelling against mere negation, against doing nothing, it is better to be sure. But how much more would a young man improve were he to study during those years? "'Indeed, if a young man is wild and must run after women and bad company, "'it is better this should be done abroad, "'as on his return he can break off such connections "'and begin at home a new man with a character to form "'and acquaintances to make. "'How little does travelling supply to the conversation "'of any man who has travelled! "'How little to Beauclark!' "'Boswell, what say you to Lord—' "'Johnson, I never but once heard him talk of what he had seen— AND THAT WAS OF A LARGE SERPENT IN ONE OF THE PYRAMIDS OF EGYPT. BOSWELL. WELL, I HAPPENED TO HEAR HIM TELL THE SAME THING, WHICH MADE ME MENTION HIM. FOOTNOTE. HIS LORDSHIP WAS, TO THE LAST, IN THE HABIT OF TELLING THIS STORY RATHER TOO OFTEN. Croker, END OF FOOTNOTE. I TALKED OF A COUNTRY LIFE. JOHNSON. WERE I TO LIVE IN THE COUNTRY, I WOULD NOT DEVOTE MYSELF TO THE ACQUISITION OF POPULARITY. I WOULD LIVE IN A MUCH BETTER WAY, MUCH MORE HAPPILY. I would have my time at my own command Boswell, but sir is it not a sad thing to be at a distance from all our literary friends Johnson, sir, you will by and by have enough of this conversation which now delights you so much As he was a zealous friend of subordination He was at all times watchful to repress the vulgar cant against the manners of the great high people sir said he are the best Take a hundred ladies of quality, you will find them better wives, better mothers, more willing to sacrifice their own pleasure to their children than a hundred other women. Tradeswomen, I mean the wives of tradesmen, in the city, who are worth from ten to fifteen thousand pounds, are the worst creatures upon the earth, grossly ignorant and thinking viciousness fashionable. Farmers, I think, are often worthless fellows. Footnote our eyes and ears may convince us wrote Wesley there is not a less happy body of men in all England than the country farmers in General their life is supremely dull and it is usually unhappy too for of all people in the kingdom They are the most discontented Seldom satisfied with either God or man He did not hold with Johnson as to the upper classes. Oh How hard it is he said to be shallow enough for a polite audience end of footnote Few lords will cheat, and if they do, they'll be ashamed of it. Farmers cheat, and are not ashamed of it. They have all the sensual vices, too, of the nobility, with cheating into the bargain. There is as much fornication and adultery among farmers as among noblemen. Boswell The notion of the world, sir, however, is that the morals of women of quality are worse than those in lower stations. Johnson "'Yes, sir, the licentiousness of one woman of quality makes more noise than that of a number of women lower stations. "'Then, sir, you ought to consider the malignity of women in the city against women of quality, "'which will make them believe anything of them, such as that they call their coachmen to bed.' "'No, sir, so far as I have observed, the higher in rank the richer ladies are, "'they are the better instructed and the more virtuous.' This year, the Reverend Mr. Horn published his letter to Mr. Dunning on the English particle. Johnson read it, and though not treated in it with sufficient respect, he had candor enough to say to Mr. Seward, "Were I to make a new edition of my dictionary, I would adopt several of Mr. Horn's etymologies." Footnote: In Mr. Horn took's enlargement of that letter, which he has since published with the title of Greek Epipterouenta or The Diversions of Pearley, he mentions this compliment, as if Dr. Johnson, instead of several of his etymologies, had said all. His recollection, having thus magnified it, shows how ambitious he was of the approbation of so great a man. Boswell, Horne-Took says, immediately after the publication of my letter to Mr. Dunning, I was informed by Mr. S. Seward, an intimate friend of Dr. Johnson, that he had declared that, if he lived to give a new edition of his dictionary, he should certainly adopt my derivations. Boswell and Horn took says Stevens, had an altercation. Happening to meet at a gentleman's house, Mr. Boswell proposed to make up the breach, on the express condition, however, that they should drink a bottle of wine each between the toasts. But Mr. Took would not give his assent unless the liquor should be brandy. By the time a quart had been quaffed, Boswell was left sprawling on the floor. End of footnote. I hope they did not put the dog in the pillory for his libel. He has too much literature for that. Footnote. Thurlow, the attorney-general, pressed that horn should be set in the pillory, observing that imprisonment would be a slight inconvenience to one of sedentary habits. It was during his imprisonment that he wrote his letter to Mr. Dunning horace walpole says that lord mansfield was afraid and would not venture the pillory End of footnote. on saturday may sixteenth i dined with him at mr beauclerk's with mr langton mr Stevens, dr higgins and some others i regret very feelingly every instance of my remissness in recording his memorabilia i am afraid it is the condition of humanity as mr windham of norfolk once observed to me after having made an admirable speech in the house of commons which was highly applauded but which he afterwards perceived might have been better that we are more uneasy from thinking of our wants than happy in thinking of our acquisitions this is an unreasonable mode of disturbing our tranquillity and should be corrected Let me then comfort myself with the large treasure of Johnson's conversation Which I have preserved for my own enjoyment and that of the world and let me exhibit what I have upon each occasion Whether more or less whether a pulse or only a few sparks of a diamond He said Dr. Mead lived more in the broad sunshine of life than almost any man footnote He raised, says Hawkins, the medical character to such a height of dignity as was never seen in this or any other country. I have heard it said that when he began to practice, he was a frequenter of the meeting at Stepney where his father preached, and that when he was sent for out of the assembly, his father would, in his prayer, insert a petition in behalf of the sick person. I once mentioned this to Johnson, who said it was too gross for belief. But it was not so at Batson's a coffee-house frequented by physicians. It passed there as a current belief. Young has introduced him in the second of his night thoughts. That time is mine, O mead, to thee I owe. Fain would I pay thee with eternity. Horace Walpole says that he had nothing but pretensions. End of footnote. The disaster of General Burgoyne's army was then the common topic of conversation. It was asked why piling their arms was insisted upon as a matter of such consequence, when it seemed to be a circumstance so inconsiderable in itself. Footnote. On October seventeenth, 1777, Burgoyne's army surrendered to the Americans at Saratoga. One of the articles of the Convention was that the army should march out of the camp with all the honors of war to a fixed place where they were to deposit their arms. It is said that general gates the American commander paid so nice and delicate an attention to the British military honor That he kept his army close within their lines and did not suffer an American soldier to be a witness to the degrading spectacle of piling their arms Horace Walpole on Lord Cornwallis's capitulation in 1781 wrote the newspapers on the court side had been crammed with paragraphs for a fortnight saying that Lord Cornwallis had declared he would never pile up his arms like Burgoyne. That is, he would rather die sword in hand. End of footnote. Johnson. Why, sir, a French author says, Il y a beaucoup de puerilité dans la guerre. All distinctions are trifles, because great things can seldom occur, and those distinctions are settled by custom. A savage would as willingly have his meat sent to him in the kitchen, as eat it at the table here. As men become civilized, various modes of denoting honorable preference are invented. He this day made the observations upon the similarity between Rasselas and Candide, which I have inserted in its proper place, when considering his admirable philosophical romance. He said Candide he thought had more power in it than anything Voltaire had written He said the lyrical part of Horace never can be perfectly translated So much of the excellence is in the numbers and the expression Francis has done it the best I'll take his five out of six against them all on Sunday May 17 I presented to him mr. Fullerton of Fullerton who has since distinguished himself so much in India, to whom he naturally talked of travels, as Mr. Bryden accompanied him in his tour to Sicily and Malta. He said, The information which we have from modern travellers is much more authentic than what we had from ancient travellers. Ancient travellers guessed, modern travellers measure. To count is a modern practice. The ancient method was to guess. And when numbers are guessed, they are always magnified. End of footnote. The Swiss admit that there is but one error in Stanion. If Bryden were more attentive to his Bible, he would be a good traveller. He said, Lord Chatham was a dictator. He possessed the power of putting the state in motion. Now there is no power. All order is relaxed. Boswell Is there no hope of a change to the better? Johnson. Why, yes, sir, when we are weary of this relaxation. So the City of London will appoint its mayors again by seniority. Boswell. But is not that taking a mere chance for having a good or a bad mayor? Johnson. Yes, sir, but the evil of competition is greater than that of the worst mayor that can come. Besides, there is no more reason to suppose that the choice of a rabble will be right than that chance will be right. On Tuesday, May nineteenth, I was to set off for Scotland in the evening. He was engaged to dine with me at Mr. Dilly's. I waited upon him to remind him of his appointment and attend him thither. He gave me some salutary counsel and recommended vigorous resolution against any deviation from moral duty. Boswell But you would not have me bind myself to a solemn obligation? Johnson much agitated. What a vow? Oh, no sir. A vow is a horrible thing. It is a snare for sin footnote All unnecessary vows are folly because they suppose a prescience of the future which has not been given us They are I think a crime because they resign that life to chance which God has given us to be regulated by reason and superinduce a kind of fatality from which it is the great privilege of our nature to be free. Johnson praises the just and noble thoughts in Cowley's lines, which begin Where honour or where conscience does not bind, no other law shall shackle me. Slave to myself I ne'er will be, nor shall my future actions be confined by my own present mind. End of footnote. The man who cannot go to heaven without a vow. May go, here standing erect in the middle of his library and rolling grand, his pause was truly a curious compound of the solemn and the ludicrous. He half whistled in his usual way when pleasant, and he paused as if checked by religious awe. Methought he would have added, "To hell," but was restrained. I humoured the dilemma. "What, sir?" said I. "In caelum Juceri's ibit." Alluding to his imitation of it and bid him go to hell to hell. He goes I Had mentioned to him a slight fault in his noble imitation of the tenth satire of Juvenal, A too near recurrence of the verb spread in his description of the young enthusiast at college Through all his veins the fever of renown spreads from the strong contagion of the gown o'er Bodley's dome his future labor spread and Bacon's mansion trembles o'er his head. He had desired me to change spreads to burns, but for perfect authenticity I now had it done with his own hand. I thought this alteration not only cured the fault, but was more poetical, as it might carry an allusion to the shirt by which Hercules was inflamed. Footnote. The slip of paper on which he made the correction... Is deposited by me in the noble library to which it relates and to which i have presented other pieces of his handwriting boswell in substituting burns he resumes the reading of the first edition in which the former of the two couplets ran resistless burns the fever of renown caught from the strong contagion of the gown the slip of paper and the other pieces of johnson's handwriting have been lost at all events they are not in the bodleian end of footnote we had a quiet comfortable meeting at mr dilly's nobody there but ourselves mr dilly mentioned somebody having wished that milton's tractate on education should be printed along with his poems in the edition of the english poets then going on johnson it would be breaking in upon the plan but would be of no great consequence so far as it would be anything it would be wrong Education in England has been in danger of being hurt by two of its greatest men, Milton and Locke. Milton's plan is impracticable, and I suppose has never been tried. Locke's, I fancy, has been tried often enough, but is very imperfect. It gives too much to one side and too little to the other. It gives too little to literature. Footnote. Johnson, criticising Milton's scheme of education, says... Those authors, therefore, are to be read at schools that supply most axioms of prudence, most principles of moral truth, and most materials for conversation. And these purposes are best served by poets, orators, and historians. Let me not be censured for this digression as pedantic or paradoxical. For if I have Milton against me, I have Socrates on my side. It was his labor to turn philosophy from the study of nature to speculations upon life. But the innovators whom I oppose are turning off attention from life to nature. They seem to think that we are placed here to watch the growth of plants or the motions of the stars. Socrates was rather of the opinion that what we had to learn was how to do good and avoid evil. End of footnote. I shall do what I can for Dr. Watts. But my materials are very scanty his poems are by no means his best works i cannot praise his poetry itself highly but i can praise its design footnote his ear was well tuned and his diction was elegant and copious but his devotional poetry is like that of others unsatisfactory the paucity of its topics enforces perpetual repetition and the sanctity of the matter rejects the ornaments of figurative diction. It is sufficient for Watts to have done better than others what no man has done well. Mrs. Piozzi says that when Johnson would inveigh against devotional poetry and protest that all religious verses were cold and feeble, she reminded him how, when he would try to repeat the dies irae, dies illa, he could never pass the stanza ending thus. Tantus LABOR NON SIT CASUS, WITHOUT BURSTING INTO A FLOOD OF TEARS. END OF FOOTNOTE My illustrious friend and I parted with assurances of affectionate regard. I wrote to him on the 25th of May from Thorpe, in Yorkshire, one of the seats of Mr. Bosville, and gave him an account of my having passed a day at Lincoln, unexpectedly, and therefore without having any letters of introduction, but that I had been honoured with civilities, "'from the Reverend Mr. Simpson, an acquaintance of his, "'and Captain Broadley, of the Lincolnshire Militia, "'but more particularly from the Reverend Dr. Gordon, the Chancellor, "'who first received me with great politeness as a stranger, "'and when I informed him who I was, "'entertained me at his house with the most flattering attention. "'I also expressed the pleasure with which I had found "'that our worthy friend Langton was highly esteemed in his own county-town.' End of section 38.